A recent article about gun control stated that after nearly 300 years, the only reason for the government to want to disarm the citizenry was because they planned to do something we'd shoot them for. The government says it's for your safety, but you see, pulling the teeth of the sheep for their safety will not make the wolves harmless. That's a reality that's hard to deny. But then reality is what we do. We're TNN, the Truth News Network. And here to sort out the madness is Dan Newman. Hey guys, welcome, welcome, welcome to Tuesday at TNN Live. Thank you, thank you, thank you for joining us here every day. Our numbers are growing. That means you're spreading the word. A lot of people are listening just trying to get their arms around what's really going on in our world, the important things, and there are so many of them. Hey, listen, I hope you're starting your new year with a bang. I hope you've got your arms around a lot of the important things, as many of them as you can, and determining which are important and which are not, well, I can't help you there. (laughs) We all have our own bag of stuff that we got to pull out and uh, put the bad stuff to the side, at least the stuff that we think is bad or pretty sure is bad, and then seek truths. Seek the truth to get the right stuff in your mind, in your thought process, in your relationships, especially with your immediate family members. It's a very important time around the world. Americans and Many other nations' citizens are under siege, and it's by their own government, just like it's it's by our government. Too many things just don't add up here. And I know pretty well it's the same thing in a lot of other countries. Nigeria, war-torn, Christianity, Christians being slaughtered there, other African countries. We don't hear about it all. But we know there's evil in the world, and where evil is, there must be more freedom, more liberty, more understanding of the facts. So we're all about that. That's what we do here, and you know that, and that's why you're here. We got a big day lined up. Let me tell you something. Tucker Carlson unpacked a big question that many of us have had for several years now. Former Attorney General Bill Barr, and it circumvents a lot of the um, media punditry that we often hear. In fact, we hear it every day. And we pretty much, if it's coming from one of those traditional leftist sources, we just don't even consider it, throw it to the side. Attorney General Bill Barr, former AG Barr, under President, um, President Trump, There are some very critical things that he's got to answer to. And this is in the context of all this stuff that's come up about Jeffrey Epstein, his being in jail and turning up mysteriously dead in his cell. We have that for you. Also, we have some information about our (laughs) president, our administration, and some of the stupid stuff that's happening, and people are normalizing it, trying to make it like, oh, it's no big deal. 
And of course, we're in an election year. That's what everybody wants to do every election year. Any any candidate you support, you want them to not be in the main line of fire for any baggage they may have that they don't want the public to know about. So we can't talk about that. Try to change the conversation. A bunch of that this morning, and of course, Steve Baker joins us in our second hour. This is going to be a jam-packed show today, so buckle in and get ready. It's going to be good. It always is good. Everybody get up.
Greatest hit, <laughs> probably his only hit. Anyway, that was an interesting song when it came out, wasn't it? Blurred Lines is the name of the song. Lots of news breaking today. Yeah, I got new numbers out there, and they don't look good. I know that's a shock to you. What kind of numbers? Well, twice as many Americans say they're worse off economically after 2023's Bidenomics. Let me ask you, is, is Joe quit calling our economic and his economic adventures and successes Bidenomics? Because it's a poison word for the American people. I don't know who in his camp told him to first coin that word, that explanation of the economy going on during his administration. But when it turned south and everybody knew it did, he just brought it back to life and went out on a long tour, different countries, different parts of the U.S., and started bragging about his achievements in Bidenomics. Well, you want some facts? Nearly half of Americans say we're worse off economically than we were a year ago. Not four years ago, not three years ago, but a year ago. This poll of 1,100-plus Americans, it was taken right after Christmas, found that 45% of us say we're worse off economically than we were a year ago. Just 23% say they're better off. That's a 22-point gap. 29% say they treaded water during the year last year with their finances about the same as they were a year ago. The poll highlights a failure of the Biden administration's push to convince us all that what the president calls Bidenomics has been a boon for the country. They're trying to sell it to us and nobody's buying. Inflation, or as Biden critics call it, Bidenflation, it's a major reason many Americans feel they're falling behind. Consumer prices increased 3.1% in the 12 months through November, the most recent data available. In the prior 12-month period, prices went up 7.1%. Since Biden took office, consumer prices are up, listen to this, 17%. 17%. Well, average hourly wages increased at a bit of a faster pace than prices in the 12 months through November. Workers are still behind over the long term. Since Biden took office, average hourly wages are up 14.3%, two and a half points below the inflation watermark. Now, it shouldn't surprise anybody in our age of heightened political divisiveness, especially on the part of the American left. Democrats are much more likely than other Americans to say they're better off. And I wonder if they really are, or if they're just hardcore Democrats and they're going to follow the Democrat party line and lie just to do whatever the party tells them to do. 39% of Democrats say they're better off. 39%. I'd like to meet somebody that would be honest about that. Just 18% of Republicans, 13% of Americans not affiliated with any major party say they're better off. And obviously there's a strong racial divide too. Black Americans on one side, other minorities and whites on the other. 
32% of blacks say they are worse off than they were a year ago. 45% of whites and 55% of other minorities say so. Now, we all know Joe Biden went on the campaign trail. First speech of this campaign for the 2024 presidency was Friday night. And he was horrible. Did you read the front page story at truthnewsnet.org yesterday? Talked about it on the show. I wrote it, and it is an expose. It includes bits and pieces of the things that he said in his first campaign speech. But he didn't talk about what he's going to do if he's elected again. He doesn't want to talk about it. And oh my God, he certainly can't talk about his great successes for the American people in his first three years as president. So if you weren't with us yesterday, you didn't read the story, you don't know this. Here's what's happening. Somebody got in his ear, probably somebody like Barack Obama, who we know is in Joe's ear about politicking, campaigning, etc., and told him, you've got to go on the attack against Donald Trump. You don't have anything to brag about in your three years, Mr. Biden. You don't. So what you got to do is just go on full bore attack. Now, here's the problem with Joe. Attacking somebody doesn't necessarily to him mean attacking somebody with facts. He's not a fact guy. I think everybody knows that now. In fact, he's got a treasure trove of lies in his rearview mirror, over 2,000 in his first year in the presidency. Over 2,000. In fact, the fact checkers just said, we're done with this. We're not even going to try to keep up with them anymore. Now, that's a dangerous thing for a guy that is just being told, you got to go out and make up some stuff and attack Donald Trump every time you open your mouth in a quote-unquote campaign situation. So what did Joe do yesterday? Well, he's got a friend down in South Carolina. In fact, that congressman down there, he was the one that put Joe in the White House. So he goes down there, and he got the typical warm Democrat Party group of people at a church, obviously, that you expect any Democrat to get. But it wasn't quite as hot and heavy as it was when he went down there before the 2020 election. Americans of every yoke are hurting under this president. Nobody can credibly say otherwise. It's just really, really bad. Steve Baker's going to join us in our second hour today. I told you as we opened the show, and I was waiting for as many of you as we're going to sign on in the top part of the show to get here because Tucker Carlson broke some bread last night. And it has to do with the January 6th stuff. No, not really. But it's all rolled into one big wafer. All of it. Think about all the stuff that happened over the last three or four years. Now, right now, today, the big one is Jeffrey Epstein. Jeffrey Epstein, he was uh, he was arrested. A lot of charges that have to do with perversion, uh, doing things with and doing things about young girls. 
taking him down to his private island in the Caribbean. Many, many wealthy, politically connected people from around the globe were Epstein's guests guests down there. And so names are coming out. And boy, every day, some more big names are revealed that they were part of this down there. Now, they don't talk about the notes that we've seen. They don't talk about the specific acts that were being carried on by whom and with whom down there. But it's very, very ugly. So Epstein gets jailed, and he's jailed in Manhattan in one of the biggest, most, um, I guess, safest federal prison in that part of the country. And he died in his cell, hanging. He died in his cell, Jeffrey Epstein. Somebody stepped in after that. Very important. That shocked me when I heard from Tucker Carlson who it was and what the circumstances were. And with all of the stuff up in the air, not able to confirm this and not able to confirm that, questions about so-called facts over here and so-called facts over here, Nobody can nail down a lot of things when it comes to who done it. Former Attorney General Bill Barr, a very conservative guy, he was Donald Trump's Attorney General, he weighed in in a very questionable and mysterious way about Jeffrey Epstein's hanging. Here's Tucker. On Saturday morning, August 10th, 2019, Attorney General William Barr was working in his home office when his chief of staff called to say that Jeffrey Epstein had just been found dead in his cell in New York City. Barr was shocked and upset to hear this. His first reaction, as he recounts in his memoir, was to worry that some people in America might not buy the idea that Jeffrey Epstein had killed himself. Quote, no one's going to believe it was a suicide, Barr fretted to his chief of staff. There will be conspiracy theories all over the place. Now, that's a pretty odd response if you think about it. At the time, there was no way that Bill Barr could have known for sure how Jeffrey Epstein died. So you would think, as the attorney general, his first concern would be finding out what actually happened. But instead, his first concern was worried that the public might jump to unapproved conclusions about what happened. And in some ways, Bill Barr was right to worry. Many Americans did not believe that Jeffrey Epstein had killed himself. Given the strange circumstances of his death, stranger even than most people understood at the time, it was going to take a sustained public relations campaign to convince Americans that Jeffrey Epstein killed himself. But Bill Barr was willing to make the effort. Two days later, he flew to New Orleans, gave a speech, and said this. I was appalled, and indeed the whole department was, and frankly, angry, to learn of the MCC's failure to adequately secure this prisoner. We are now learning of serious irregularities at this facility that are deeply concerning and demand a thorough investigation. The FBI and the Office of Inspector General are doing just that. We will get to the bottom of what happened, and there will be accountability. So the country is skeptical and concerned. Bill Barr is skeptical and concerned. We will get to the bottom of what happened and there will be accountability, he promised that day. But that turned out to be untrue. Three and a half years after Jeffrey Epstein died, no one has gotten to the bottom of what happened that day, and there has been no accountability for it. 
The only people ever punished for the grotesque malfeasance surrounding Epstein's death were two low-level guards who fell asleep on duty that night. Both pleaded guilty to falsifying government records. But last year, with no real explanation, an Obama-appointed judge dropped all charges against both of them. One of the guards may still work for the federal government. As for getting to the bottom of what happened, despite many promises from many various officials, neither the FBI nor the Justice Department's Office of Inspector General has ever issued a report explaining how Jeffrey Epstein died. Not a word. So once again, three and a half years after one of the most widely covered deaths of our time, there are still no answers and there is still no accountability. Why is that? Well, many reasons, probably, but one of them is that Washington veteran Bill Barr, the only man in the modern era to serve as attorney general twice, declared the Epstein case closed. Now, at first blush, Barr seems to have good reason for doing that. By the end of 2019, Barr writes in his memoir, I was confident that Jeffrey Epstein committed suicide by hanging himself. Now, why did Bill Barr believe that? Well, the first piece of evidence he offers up is this, quote, the New York City medical examiner had conducted an autopsy and ruled that Epstein killed himself by hanging. That's the first piece of evidence. The second is this. It's a videotape that, quote, confirmed the medical examiner's findings. I personally reviewed that video footage, Barr writes. It shows conclusively that between the time Epstein was locked in his cell at 7.49 p.m. on the night of August 9th and the time he was discovered the next morning at 6.30, no one entered his tier, end quote. Therefore, Bill Barr explained, we can know for sure that Jeffrey Epstein killed himself. In his book, Barr ends this section on Epstein with a self-congratulatory note. The management changes I made at the time to the federal prison system were good ones, and I think the agency is slowly on its way back. In other words, everything is fine now. Let's move on. This was enough for most journalists in Washington. Virtually every subsequent news story about Jeffrey Epstein's death denounced skeptics of the official story as crazy, who, for whatever reason, were engaged in, quote, baseless conspiracy theories. What's amazing, in retrospect, is that none of these reporters, veterans at the Washington Post, the Associated Press, NBC News, The New York Times, many others, none of them ever thought to revisit Bill Barr's assessment of Epstein's death and measure it against the basic tenets of common sense. If you did that, you saw that what Bill Barr said about Jeffrey Epstein was transparently absurd and very obviously dishonest. Barr began by claiming that the medical examiner who conducted Epstein's autopsy ruled his death a suicide. But that is not true. The initial cause of death following the autopsy was not suicide, but, quote, pending, which is to say unclear. The medical examiner who performed the autopsy could not say how Jeffrey Epstein died. Forensic pathologist Michael Bodden, who was also present that day, came away believing Epstein had been murdered. After reviewing more than a thousand suicides by hanging in New York State, Bodden later said he couldn't find a single neck injury, not one, that matched the injury that Epstein sustained. Jeffrey Epstein did not kill himself, Bodden concluded. He was strangled. The physical evidence he saw at the autopsy made that obvious. But New York City's chief medical examiner, Barbara Sampson, who was not present at the autopsy, overruled the judgment of those who were. Days later, on the basis of no new evidence or investigation, Barbara Sampson simply declared Jeffrey Epstein's death a suicide. That was the city's official but totally unsupported conclusion, which Bill Barr and many others promptly repeated. Why did Chief Medical Examiner Barbara Sampson do that? We don't know. We called Sampson today to ask her, but she hung up on us. Then there's the question of the videotape, which Barr cited. Both cameras trained on the door of Jeffrey Epstein's cell did not work that night, famously. And to this day, no one has explained why they didn't work. 
So the video footage that Bill Barr said he watched didn't cover Epstein's cell, just the entrance to the larger cell block. No one came in or out of the tier, Barr said. Therefore, Jeffrey Epstein killed himself. So let's consider that claim rationally. On the night of August 9th, Jeffrey Epstein was being held in the special housing unit of the Metropolitan Correctional Center in Manhattan, the most secure part of the city's federal lockup. It would be physically impossible for a stranger to get in and out of this facility without an electronic pass and without being seen by the countless cameras in place between the street and the locked ninth floor of the building. So if Jeffrey Epstein was murdered, he was not murdered by an intruder, someone who came into the tier. He was murdered by someone on his own cell block, obviously. There were seven other cells on Epstein's tier, and each one housed dangerous criminals. So if you were looking for a killer, you would figure out who was in those cells. But no one seems to have thought of that or done it. The Bureau of Prisons refused to provide us with a list of the inmates on Epstein's tier. It's not clear how many of them were even interviewed by investigators, despite the fact that some of them were transferred out of the facility shortly after Epstein's death. That's a baffling oversight. Instead, Attorney General Bill Barr simply assured the country that no one from outside came into Jeffrey Epstein's tier and declared the case solved. And if you think about it, that is a remarkable way to assess a potential crime scene, especially when you consider the source. Bill Barr was not a civilian or a crime novel aficionado. He was the chief law enforcement officer of the United States. He was the nation's top cop. His job was to solve crimes. And yet somehow with all his law enforcement experience, it never seemed to dawn on Bill Barr that if there was a killer, the killer would have come from one of the cells on Epstein's tier. And then further, apparently, no one in the entire FBI suggested this to Bill Barr as they reviewed the case. Excuse me, Mr. Attorney General. It doesn't matter what the camera outside the tier shows. What matters is what happened inside the tier. Again, obvious. And yet, apparently, no one at DOJ ever said that to Bill Barr, and no one in the media noticed. It's all very strange, and the story gets much stranger once you start pressing a little bit. We've pressed pretty hard for the last few days on this question, not because we have any special affection for Jeffrey Epstein. We've pressed because you don't want to live in a country where it's possible to murder people in federal lockup, cover up the killings, and then get away with them. That's scary. That should not be allowed in this or any other civilized place. Now, at that particular time, when the Jeffrey Epstein thing happened in that prison in Manhattan, what was going on around? There was really no big focus on this. Yeah, the Jeffrey Epstein hoo-ha was up in the air, people talking about it, all kind of conspiracy theories, but really not a lot of factual information. I saw the first list, a real list of people that had flown, the flight manifest that had been flown from various parts in the United States. Most of them took off from an airport outside of New York City going to that island down in the Caribbean. And you've got to have a flight manifest legally, which means who's on the flight. And I saw some names that really shocked me, but I saw most that didn't. I mean, we just assumed we knew they were affiliated with Epstein. Many went to his big ranch out in New Mexico. But, of course, the bulk of them visited Lolita Island, whatever the name is of that island down there, for obviously not so um, benign purposes. 
And there were a lot of stories out there, a lot of evidence, people coming forward, giving testimony for a lot of people involved in very unseemly sexual actions with underage girls. The number one person on the list was former President Bill Clinton. I'll get to that in just a second. Let's circle back to Bill Barr, Attorney General. He's known as a very conservative individual. He's also a stuck in the middle of the rule of law. He lives there. And for the holes that what you just heard Tucker Carlson reveal about what happened after the fact, the circumstances of For whatever reason or reason, Attorney General Bill Barr getting in the middle of it, investigating supposedly, and coming up with these uh, conspiracy theories, and then nothing ever done about it. Believe me, if there had been, you'd know all about it. It would be all over the news with the every other day story coming out with more people being revealed as being part of this Jeffrey Epstein debacle. And according to Biden, who is probably the number one person on the planet in conducting autopsies of murdered individuals, he made no bones about it. He looked at, went through the autopsy, and what he saw said, this guy didn't commit suicide. There's no evidence to show it. But the quote-unquote experts had already determined he died at the hands of himself. He committed suicide. Why would they want to cover that up? Could it be that bad, the revelation of who or who individual or who group were on those flight manifests that took people down to Lothian Island? Maybe so. I don't know, but this kind of stuff is happening way too often in the United States, in the lives of people that we we think are straight, right down the middle, many of them very conservative and principled and do good work and have in their rearview mirror. Now, I'm not accusing anybody of anything other than this one thing that we learned down in South Louisiana when I was very young. If you see something floating around out there and it quacks and it waddles, It's always a duck. And this is not smelling good, especially now that we get the report that Bill Barr, for whatever reason, immersed himself in all of this. So meanwhile, the Jeffrey Epstein stuff is still going on, more names coming out. So as this unredacted list of Epstein associates was released day after day, Bill Clinton, who was mentioned in the documents more than 50 times, he literally, Clinton ran for the border. He sparked a social media frenzy yesterday and on Sunday when he was seen strolling among tourists in the main square of San Miguel down in Mexico. I mean, he he got out of Dodge, didn't he? The mayor of the mayor of San Miguel shared a shot, a picture of Clinton in front of the parish of San Miguel Archangel on X in a post that many felt was taunting Americans. And he said this, this is the mayor in that tweet. 
Even Bill Clinton walks calmly and safely through the streets of San Miguel, enjoying its unique beauty and kindness of the people of San Miguel. Welcome, Mr. President. Of course, the rumor mill instantly revved up. He's in Mexico because he's just appeared more than 50 times in a court document. He's an associate of pedophile Jeffrey Epstein. That actually came from a political pundit, an analyst, Isaac Lopez, told the mayor that. According to independent journalist Dom Lucre, it is worth noting that the Clintons met and were photographed with former Mexican President Enrique Pina Nieto in Punta Cana, Dominican Republic, on December 30th, 2023. In other words, during this Lolita Express debacle, the Clintons have not returned to the U.S. since they left December 29th, a couple of weeks ago. The first batch of documents relating to Epstein victim Virginia Jeffy her defamation suit against Epstein's Madam Ghislaine Maxwell were released on January 3rd. You can do the math. That's six days ago. Among them, a statement from Epstein accuser Johanna Jorberg claiming the dead pedophile once told her that Clinton liked them young. Of course, that's a reference to young girls. Another document describes Clinton as having a close personal relationship with Epstein something that he still denies. But come on now, if you're going down to the guy's private island 50 times or more, you got to at least be okay, right? Clinton's trip to Mexico didn't do anything to repair his reputation. Interesting move to flee the U.S. jurisdiction on the day the Epstein documents came out. That's from social media strategist Joey Manny around uh, Marinarino. He needs to be in jail, another user said. He ain't coming home anytime soon, a third predicted. His reputation is finished. But according to some, a bad reputation is likely all that Clinton's going to face. It's evident that his reputation has been damaged, one user acknowledged. But I doubt that any of these folks will be held responsible and or face legal consequences, even if it can be proven that crimes have been committed. So this is going to end like every other scandal story on Bill and Hillary Clinton. Nothing is going to happen. They're bulletproof. They always have been. I mean, I personally have witnessed some of the most egregious things anybody, in my knowledge, of former presidents and former first ladies slash U.S. senators have been involved in And then here comes the Clintons. They have a string of mysterious deaths in their circle of friends and business relationships. When I say a string, I'm talking about 50 plus. The one that shocked me the most was I actually saw the original autopsy report at the hospital in Washington, D.C., when Vince Foster, he was their um, their chief of staff, both when Bill was governor down in Little Rock and when they went to the White House. Vince Foster, close friends, big confidant. He's a jogger. 
he went out every morning early and jogged. New York was, uh, excuse me, Washington was no different. And he went missing. Several days later, they found him dead beside a running path in a park in Washington, D.C. Now, the news came out. It's a Clinton thing, you know? The news comes out. And he was mugged, mugged and killed in the woods in Washington, D.C. I saw about two weeks later at an official's office in the hospital in Washington, D.C. I'm not going to give you the name of the hospital, but this guy was the guy and still is. And he was red-faced when he opened the door to his office and went in. He said, close the door. i got to show you something. He shoved the, they, that hospital did the autopsy on Vince Foster. He shoved the autopsy report over in front of me. We were told that Vince Foster was shot in the back of the head. He was executed. And that kind of fit the story, don't you think? It would, you know, very powerful man in the Clinton administration jogging in the morning. And he got a, he got a, 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 he, he just got followed and, when he got in a remote place in a jogging path in the park, they shot him in the back of his head. You don't shoot yourself in the back of your head. And Vince Foster didn't. In fact, the official cause of death was murder. He had two bullet holes in the back of his head. What happened? The first bullet that he shot into his head didn't work. (laughs) I'm not laughing about it. I'm just saying things in politics, just because you are talking about the United States of America, bad stuff, unexplainable stuff. Look, we just talked about Bill Barr, very conservative, honest, constitutional scholar, attorney general. And look what he supervised in the investigation of the death of Jeffrey Epstein in his cell. And the official report of his death was that he hanged hanged himself, and he didn't. The autopsy showed otherwise. Just saying, we got some bad dudes walking around, and we've got other dudes walking around with them that are really good at hiding the facts, don't you think? Please raise your right hand and repeat after me. I, George Walker Bush, do solemnly swear. I, George Walker Bush, do solemnly swear. That I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. That I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. Let me just get this. Hello. Hey. I was just thinking about you. Yes, I was. Uh Uh-huh. Yes, I what? No, you were. That I will faithfully execute the office of president. <laughs> so, uh, what are you wearing? Of president uh, of the United uh, States. <laughs> oh. Say, can I call you back? So help me God. No, so, you hang up. No, you hang up. No, you. You hang up. So help me God. You hang Congratulations. up. It's President's Day, and everybody's getting in on the special offer from Verizon Wireless. For just $25 per month, get 1,500 anytime minutes, plus free long distance. Verizon Wireless. Join in. Wow. (laughs) You pick your champions, they're glorious, and their shields 
Oh, they glisten like uh, wet otters. But the bad guys, they're Lovecraftian, they're spooky, they're um, um, big. And then you go to battle. And it's like... And finally, your foe is vanquished, and that satisfaction is such a primal feeling. Ooh. Download Raid Shadow Legends. Play for free. If you want a smart truck, you want an F-150 with available pro-trailer backup assist. If you want a strong truck, you want an F-150 with a high-strength, military-grade aluminum alloy body. If you want a capable truck, you want an F-150 with up to 13,200 pounds of available towing. So to recap, you want the smart, the strong, the capable Ford F-150. In the clown car of the deep state, you will never find a greater den of scum and villainy. You need a hero. Here again, blaster in hand, is Dan Newman. We're about 20 minutes away from Steve Baker joining us live from somewhere. I don't have any clue where he is today. The man travels. I mean, he travels a lot. You know what is strange about that? He hates to fly. So he doesn't fly. He drives all over the United States. And I mean, I'll talk to him one day and he's in Dallas, Fort Worth. And I'll talk to him two days later and he's in San Diego. And I know that he's driving all this kind of stuff. I guess it's okay if you like to get behind the wheel. I do, but not the same way. I've always been a motorcycle guy. I had motorcycles when I was young. In fact, that was my transportation when I was in high school and early in college. I had a motorcycle, and it worked good. Obviously, sometimes you got wet, but you planned for it. You had good uh, clothing that you put over the top of your clothing, and you wore boots on the bike that were waterproof. And when Marianne and I got married and we had our first child, she kind of X the motorcycle. So I sold the bike. And many years later, after our youngest moved out of high school, into school, moved to Dallas-Fort Worth and started his professional life, she said, hey, if you want to get back into motorcycles, go ahead. So I bought a Harley and I started riding. I'm not one of those guys that loves, you know, get, get out on the weekend, shine your bike up, jump on it and drive around town looking cool. I'm one of those guys that on Easter Sunday about 10 years ago, me and two friends jumped on our Harley after Easter Sunday church, and we rode to Savannah, Georgia. And then we turned around and rode to San Francisco. And then we turned around and came home. Two weeks, 14 days, 7,000 miles, one of the most funnest, beautiful times I've ever had. When you're on a Harley or some other motorcycle and you drive across the country, even though like me, I'm an old guy, I'm 70, I was about 50 then, I'd been, I'd flown over everything, you know, Canada, the United States, Mexico, but I didn't see it from the ground level. It's much more beautiful when you see it, I saw things that just took my breath away. I mean, especially in Utah, North Rim of the Grand Canyon, South Rim of the Grand Canyon, all kinds of beautiful stuff I'd never seen before. I saw some pictures, 
but I just like to see the nation. So I understand Steve doing that sometimes, <laughs> but he does it all the time. Well, he's going to be here in just a few minutes. Something slipped out in the news media yesterday. It it shouldn't have shocked me, but it really did. It didn't, what they're talking about didn't shock me, but the fact that they reported about it really shocked me. Listen to this. The Biden campaign holds, they call, set up interviews, and hold off-the-record meetings with establishment news reporters and editors, and the purpose is for the Biden folks to provide them, these media folks, with spreadsheets about where they think their reporting fell short. This is unconscionable to me. The media's willingness to take directions from Biden suggests why Americans don't trust the establishment media. Gallup poll shows this. Only 32% trust the establishment media a great deal or a fair amount. 50% say the national media intend to mislead, misinform, and persuade the public. Just 35% say most news organizations can be relied on. New York Times, Washington Post, and other outlets participate in the meetings. Obviously, they're the big boys and they control politicians. And politicians give them anything that they want. It's a quid pro quo. Boy, that kind of fits into the Biden presidency, huh? Quid pro quo Joe. And so the Biden folks in these meetings instruct the media folks how to negatively report on Trump and where their previous reporting has fallen short. Apparently, the meeting with the Times did not go well last week. The aides claim the media are too focused on the legal attacks against Trump instead of Trump's alleged incendiary comments. (laughs) Trump being incendiary? That's too big a word to use describing Donald Trump. Biden's re-election campaign, they started organizing a series of these off-the-record trips for top political reporters and editors to the team's headquarters in Delaware, quietly. You know, we can't do it in Washington. And they met senior officials, including the campaign manager, deputies, and other high-ranking advisors for background briefings on Biden campaign strategy. They're also using it as a chance to tell them what they're getting wrong. I would go nuts if I was in the media. In the first place, I wouldn't be in the media with the New York Times or the Washington Post. It'd be some conservative outlet for me. And it's not going to be one where somebody's going to say, oh, you're using the wrong sentences to describe it. Leave that out. Oh, my God. I'd go absolutely nuts. And it seems like that's normal. I, I, I can't imagine how anybody would think that it was okay for media. It's okay to do those kinds of things. It's not. I mean, media are supposed to be totally nonpartisan. I mean, you know, everybody knows that Everybody knows who is not um, biased by a political party. Everybody knows that. There's no question there. 
But still, to so obviously go to a candidate's campaign offices and be told what to report and how to report it. That's just beyond comprehension for me. I thought you just did facts. You know, you just found the truth in it, and if it's good for whoever you're reporting about, great. If it's not, if it's bad, well, that's on them, not on you. Tell it straight. Now, every couple of days, there's some new evil reports coming out about stuff in the Biden administration. According to some court documents that came out yesterday, the Biden administration may have put its boot down on a supposedly nonpartisan science review for one purpose, to further its environmental justice agenda and to shut down a major chemical plant. It's all about politics, right? Filings, court filings, show that the administration may have gone as far as manufacturing a paper trail to boost a lawsuit against synthetic manufacturer Dinka Performance Elastomer, DPE. In stunning testimony, Michael Morton, who serves as the Environmental Protection Agency Region 6 Science Liaison, to the APA Office of Research and Development in D.C., admitted that he did not author a key July of 2021 email that was sent from his email address. The email called off a scientific review of health risks associated with chloroprene emissions, which are at the center of an ongoing federal lawsuit with some really big economic implications. During a November deposition, Morton told DPE attorneys, I didn't write that. I didn't say that, he said. For, for that part, I didn't, I didn't know that, so I don't know who wrote it. So if it's true, and I mean news people, they're suspect. Some of them are going to lie when they're scared. Some of them just lie because they're speaking. But if this is true, the testimony along with Revelation's from additional info made public in recent months, could derail the Department of Justice's lawsuit against this company, DPE. If successful, the DOJ's lawsuit filed in February could threaten the future operations of the company's major manufacturing facility in Laplace, Louisiana, and further set a precedent broadly threatening the multi-million dollar U.S. petrochemical industry. It's this green energy crap. It's everywhere. And they're, they, they're unconscionably just telling lies. It's just like going to a, a, a campaign office if you're a big-time media outlet and you got to go because they said they wanted to talk to you. And I mean, it's the president of the United States. He's running for re-election. Well, we definitely want to be on the inside, right? So when you get there, they start telling you what to report and what to say and who and what not to report on. Does that sound like maybe something that would happen in uh, Russia or China? And this is happening in this administration. 
you just yeah, why why do we even give anybody in politics the benefit of the doubt anymore? It's almost like every time you hear something bad about anybody involved in politics, just go ahead and believe it's the truth. Especially if it's people on the left taking on people on the right because the left will do anything, say anything to help their candidate or help their cause that they're promoting in their reporting online or television, radio, whatever. Truth doesn't matter to them. Just say what you what you got to say. So, we're about to kick off formally into an election cycle. And so everybody running in this election coming up in November, every federal office you can imagine, do do you get campaign text and emails? I counted mine yesterday. Before I went to bed last night, I, I, I keep them in a file. And it comes from unimaginable sources. I can't tell you. 20% of the people that are sending me campaign ads, requests, and are asking for financial support, I don't even know who they are. I got one the other day from a state legislator in Nebraska. I never heard of this guy. And I mean, he was crying the blues about, I'm going to have to suspend my campaign because I don't have any money. Can you help us out? And I understand the cause. But here's the, and next time I get face-to-face with Congressman Mike Johnson, and it'll happen pretty soon, by the way. He's going to come by and visit with you again, I've been told. We used to have him on every three weeks or so, but when he became House Speaker, it was impossible for him to uh, fulfill all of the requests he has for interviews, and I understand that, but you know, this is TNN Live. This is his home state. This is his hometown and we helped get him elected the first time. It's going to be fine. But with this election cycle kicking into high gear, it's just overflowing. I had 300 texts and emails yesterday asking for money. And it's, it's, it's outsourced. They hire these campaigns, outsource these companies that have, if you're Not now, because I hadn't been a registered Republican in a decade, but at one time I was, and I'm on the Republican voter list, campaign voter list still, and they just send out these mass texts and emails, and it's gotten so difficult already that I may get the same text or email three or four times a day from the same person. It's getting a little overbearing. So talking about looking for deals and help and money with this election just around the corner, Biden is increasingly turning to Mexico. I don't think Joe Biden has anything to do with Mexico. I don't think he's ever been there. I know Kamala has, but... Joe Biden has turned to Mexico for health. They need help with slowing the nation-crushing flow of illegals across our border. Likely sensing panic from his party, Mexico 
is now leveraging the crisis in the Biden administration to place a few um, ambitious demands. That's a nice way of saying it. Hold on in a hostage. Demands. And they're leveraging the crisis to put a few demands on the much-needed assistance. So in this latest meeting in Mexico with Mexican President Lopez Obrador, Homeland Security Secretary Mayorkas, and Secretary of State Antony Blinken, the two most incompetent people in our government today, with maybe the exception of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, they engaged in preliminary discussions. That's, that's the term they use, preliminary discussions about increased help. Increased help. Officials from both government f- familiar with the talks told NBC, but no hard promises were made. Mexico conducted a Friday press conference in which he called on the U.S. to approve a plan that would deploy $20 billion to Latin America and Caribbean countries, suspend the U.S. blockade of Cuba, remove all sanctions against Venezuela, and grant at least 10 million Hispanics living in the U.S. the right to remain and work legally. How bold is that? It's the craziest thing I've ever heard of. We got to move on today. We're going to take our first break. Or this is our second break. On the other side of this, Steve Baker at TNN Live. Get cracking and feel unbeatable with new omelet bites from Duncan. Bacon and cheddar or egg white and veggie. Made with cage-free eggs and packed with protein. Take on the day with new omelet bites from Duncan. America runs on Duncan. At Aukio, we've been making the best in mobile phones for over 20 years. How did we get there? By putting ringtones in every commercial that make you think your phone is ringing. Whether you have a new phone, an old phone, or just leave it on vibrate, we make sure you always hear your phone in our commercials. It's our way of saying, we hear you. So don't be silenced when opportunity calls pick it up. It's for you. Aukio Mobile. You're juvenile, mate. Everyone has one. The guy that's fun to be around, but he's dangerous to be around. You've got to keep him away from your things, like your tools, your gadgets, and your girlfriend. So before you get your juvenile mate around, get your lips around a dare iced coffee. The real Arabica and Robusta coffee kick will tell you what to do. Hire a jumping castle. Hours of fun for kids of all ages. A dare iced coffee fix will fix it. Starbucks Via Instant is made with the same 100% Arabica beans served at Starbucks. So it's the only instant with the rich, delicious taste of the Starbucks coffees you love and takes only seconds to make. Starbucks Via Instant, the only instant coffee of its kind. Available in black flavored lattes and iced coffee. What's the biggest number you can think of? A trillion, billion, zillion. That's pretty big. How about you? Ten. Okay. How about you? Infinity. Can you top that? Infinity and one. Actually, we are looking for infinity plus infinity. Sorry. What about infinity times infinity? 
It's not complicated. Bigger is better. And AT&T has the nation's largest 4G network. Getting tired of only spin while looking for just the news? No spin, just truth. Read and hear it every day on TNN, the Truth News Network. Truthnewsnet.org. Speaking of looking for truth and finding things out and getting things for you and me, on the phone with us now, somewhere out in uh, the United States of America, driving is Steve Baker. Good morning, sir. Good morning, Dan. Uh, I'm sure you don't want to talk about where you are because it would be top secret, so we won't say that. (laughs) (laughs) Steve's on his way. Go ahead. All, all the people that want to know where I am, they can find me. Yeah. <laughs> Those, I'm, the, surra- I'm surrounded by too much trackable technology. <laughs> Isn't it spooky whenever you think of that, that if they if they want to find out where you are for whatever their reasons would be, there are so many different ways to do it. Uh, it's incredible what our technology does, and that's good in some cases, but it's also pretty bad in some cases. Um, it's hard like we used to, we could, we could hide. You're not going to find me unless I want you to find me. Now you can't say that anymore. Well, I mean, me just signing into this call with you, I mean, I'm pinging addresses everywhere. Yeah. Well, we know we have friends in Virginia that listen every show. We should have, we should have got at least first names and sent them some uh, Christmas cookies or, or something. I know, I know, I know. Because they're, they're, they're spending a lot of time tracking and listening to you. Well, how was your holiday? It was good. I, I think that um, the last time that you and I spoke, last uh, and it's hard to believe because I'm losing track now of where I was even just a week ago. But I believe that when we spoke last week, I was sitting in the uh, Capitol CCTV viewing room in D.C., and you got mad. Um, you got mad because I interrupted you. You were working. <laughs> no. no, I was. I was on edge because of what I had just seen that day, and and I am headed to Dallas now because we're going to be uh, going into production with uh, some of these videos that we have captured there uh, to reveal more um, uh, unknown aspects about what happened on January sixth. And that is got me really excited, but I was really particularly uh, pumped up that morning last Tuesday because when we started talking, it was 11 a.m. Eastern time, but by 10:30, I had seen something in the video that just had me bouncing off the walls, and that's that was the mood that you caught me in last week. <laughs> okay, tell us what you saw. Well. I- <laughs> can't yet but uh, oh, I, 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 I hate that I I know I know and and we will be but it was it was a situation that changed the trajectory of my trip to DC because of what I saw it immediately threw me into meetings the next day that I did not have on my calendar because of the fact that I had to take this information to uh, congressional staff and investigators that have had asked me to take a look at this. They, they, you know, they, they've gotten to the point where they trust my eye 
they trust me or anticipate, hopefully, that I will see maybe things that they didn't see themselves uh, within the evidence. And that is something that happened a week ago today. And uh, I'm more than excited and anxious to begin rolling this out as soon as we can. But then we have we have the proper processes and clearances that we have to um, make or navigate our way through in order to release this information because some of these, again, are sensitive videos. Some of these are videos that have never been released to the public. Some of these are actual evidences that have been deliberately hidden from the public. And so I, uh, my first questions when I contacted a certain, let's just say high-ranking um, uh, congressional aide, was, are you going to give me this video? Yes. Are you going to give me this video? Yes. Are you going to give me the documents uh, that I need that support what I'm seeing? Yes. And so now we have to get those in our hands and then start the process of producing that for public consumption. And then I have to go through the process of getting uh, clearances just on our final edit and presentation so as not to uh, violate any trust that we've established uh, in these um, uh, these investigations we've been doing, but also so that we do not um, uh, hurt people that don't need to be hurt, yeah. people that are innocent and people that don't need uh, to be uh, quote unquote doxed by the left or by the sedition hunters or by uh, any other group that would want to uh, go directly into the politics of personal destruction, as we know that uh, that phrase, and of course, what you know, part of which I'm dealing with now myself. But that's a that's another story. But that's that's you know the process of this of this entire work that I've been doing is it's people get really frustrated at me uh, on social media, you know, particularly on. X, the platform formerly known as Twitter, in that they go, if you have this, why don't you release it? What are you hiding? Why? I said, no, there's, there, there's a, there is a um, labyrinth of uh, uh, processes that we have to go through once we make these discoveries in order to bring them to the public. Well, since we spoke last, things have really heated up in the area of new exposures of January 6th stuff. And you, for the last year and a half or two, however long you've been with us, you've been immersed in everything to do with J6 for several years now. And as more and more facts have been pulled up by the roots so that finally everybody could see what we were told and had been being told for three years about J6, many parts of it were not only not true, they were purposely misrepresented in the media. And so yes. Epic Times, they've just released their part two of their big uh, expose on January 6th stuff. Mm-hmm. I spent time, I got a call from uh, your friend, I think from the Daily Caller, about something coming out, another big investigative thing coming out of the Daily Caller. It's very timely, obviously, because it's election year. And then, of course, out of nowhere the other day, Former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi shows up and she's weighing in with her little tidbits of, hey, you just listen to what I say and don't ask any questions. You just shut up. I'm Nancy Pelosi. I'd forgotten how much I despised her messaging 
operations. <laughs> but yeah. I think they're getting scared, Steve. I really believe they, of course, they know most of the stuff that has been hidden. They were the ones that dug the hole and somebody else in the Capitol Police or some other place shoved the stuff in the hole that they dug and they're trying to hide it and trying to deflect the attention of the American people. What they don't understand, I think more than half of the American people feel that all of the information that was publicly disseminated by the government when Nancy Pelosi was still House Speaker, it was false. And they know there's more to it than we know. But here's where Americans are. When they so boldly started just explosively arresting people that their only real crime was being there and being on the Capitol grounds. And you and I both know, you know more than I do, but we know people that, and I saw right after it all happened, I saw videos of four different sets of Capitol police that in live watched it happen where they removed barriers from the sidewalks leading up to the Capitol and they were waving these people that were on the Capitol grounds, waving them up the steps and encouraging them to go into the Capitol. We've seen that, but many people in government have been petrified watching what's happening to some people that actually act on what they know is factual regarding that day, and they're being quiet. They don't want to talk about it. I mean, Jim Jordan, prime example, when he got the head of that committee, he made it very clear, we're not going to do any more about January 6th stuff. And I think maybe he softened on that since. But they're afraid, yes. they're afraid for their jobs. They're afraid to be attacked by the Biden Department of Justice. And Americans are feeling like, you know, we just got to stand on the sidelines and hope that they get this right, but they're afraid to get into the fray. There aren't many uh, Steve Bakers around that are willing to dive in regardless of what the probable pushback is going to be, totally committed to do the right thing and make sure we find the right thing. That really, surprises. That really thing, surprises yeah, me. The most significant thing we saw in the last four or five days, because there was a lot of action, a lot of speechifying related to January 6th coming from both the left and the right. And what we saw uh, from President Biden was singularly the most instructive aspect of how the narrative is intended to be continued. As Nancy Pelosi said two years ago, she said the purpose for establishing that committee of her House Select Committee was to, and this is a quote, to establish and preserve the narrative of January 6th. And that's an exact quote. And so that narrative that they were establishing while they, while they were still in control of the House is being dismantled now while the Republicans have control of the House because, as you know, individuals like myself have been granted access to that video and were able to start making these reveals. And we have Clay Higgins uh, with his reveal on Tucker the other night. Uh, we have um, uh, many more, uh, in, you know, intrepid investigators who are digging deep into this thing. 
these documentaries that are coming out. But the most instructive thing came from the president himself when his speech was given on January 6th, in which he literally impugned and accused half of the nation of being basically right-wing extremists, terrorists, domestic terrorists, um, uh, white supremacists, things of that nature. And he tied it all in to the evidence that their side has produced, the one-sided evidence that they produced for and had control of for the first couple of years in their video reveals, in their uh, constructed and highly um, uh, produced, Hollywood-produced congressional hearings that they rolled out in prime time for the country to see from that House Select Committee. And then the next day on Sunday, he's speaking in a church, Dan, in which he praises, he actually goes on record praising the advancements that they made and the changes that they made in the country through the riots of 2020. So let's just put this into real live perspective. The only people that died that day on January 6th were four of the protesters. Obviously, we all know about Ashley Babbitt being shot by Lieutenant Michael Byrd. We know about the two men in the in the crowd that had heart attacks or strokes and died in the crowd. We know about Roseanne Boylan, who was variously trampled, beaten, suffocated by OC sprays and tear gas and whatever whatever caused her heart to stop beating happened that day. And then we know that less than $2 million worth of damage was done by the ne'er-do-wells who were there at the Capitol that day. We know that 140 police officers were injured variously to various degrees that day. So that's the real numbers that we know happened. By contrast, in the riots of 2020, which began with the death of George Floyd, there was somewhere upwards of $3 billion worth of damage, not to mention the economic fallout that was happened there after, after neighborhoods were burned to the ground and no longer accessible because of the damage done and the stores and the, the, the shops and the, the, the services that were denied uh, people that lived in those neighbors for months on end. But we also know that over 20 people, around 25 people lost their lives in those riots, including a dozen police officers. We know that uh, thousands and thousands of people committed crimes, only of which a very, very small handful were actually held to account for those crimes, whereas it was a largely a catch and release program, whereas if you looted, broke windows, or set uh, stores on fire, you were you were given a slap on the wrist, if that, maybe held overnight in jail, if that, you were released back into the streets, there was no follow-up, no prosecutions, and these individuals are now being given the grace of uh, not being not being prosecuted because their cause was righteous. Their anger 
was righteous. The anger of those who went to the Capitol, went to Washington, D.C. on January 6th, by contrast, is not righteous. It is domestic terrorism. That is the narrative that Nancy Pelosi seeks still to preserve and which she attempted to establish in those hearings that she conducted. All of these investigations and documentaries that are coming to a head, and we're going to see them all, it's not going to be like one documentary, 2,000 Mules, with lots and lots of data and a lot of assumptions being made. There have been very strategic, in-depth investigations by professionals, and they've been quiet on the most part while they've been investigating, but this stuff is going to start coming out. And the left, they are frantic. I know personally, a person, a good friend of mine, was in the middle of some of the conversations that occurred around Joe Biden and Barack Obama over the last week and a half or 10 days. A lot of friction there because Barack Obama instructed Joe, you've got to get off of this thing about Joe Biden. If you're expecting to win in the 2024 election, you've got to go postal at Donald Trump and everybody that supported him because you've lost a big chunk of your base just because of your economic policies and how it's crippled many people that have always been in our camp. You've pushed them to the side. And I guess Friday night and then again on Sunday when he was in South Carolina at the church on Sunday and he gave his first speech up in uh, Pennsylvania Friday night, no mention of anything he's going to do for the people if he's reelected. Both speeches were massive attacks against Donald Trump and all of those mega, MAGA extremists slash white supremacists. He actually used that term in the church in South Carolina. This is what we predicted, you predicted, I predicted, a lot of conservatives and media predicted was going to happen because it would be the only way the left could continue this push to take total control of the nation and pushing us literally into an authoritarian environment where a small hand-held group of very heavy-handed people are going to be controlling almost everything for the American people. We used to say, that's a conspiracy theory. It's happening. It's happening as we as we sit here today. That's exactly what's happening. And, and the way that they are responding to these new revelations that are coming out, not just from myself, but from Laura Logan, from uh, Joe Hanneman at the Epic Times, <clears throat> and other of these investigators, is that they are ramping up now the arrests. Uh, they are, uh, it is, it is a, uh, a measurable spike in the number of arrests that are taking place. They even arrested as a show three individuals down in Florida. They've been holding them back. Now, these three individuals were on the FBI's most wanted list for what they call AFO offenses, assaults on federal officers, but they, they made the spectacle of arresting them on Saturday, the, um, now they've had, uh, Dan, they've had these identities for months. 
this, this is this is absolutely abhorrent on the, on the part of the DOJ and the FBI. They've known who these three individuals were, identified by name for months. They saved their arrests for Saturday as a big show on the third anniversary. This is political. They are making political look, and these these are probably individuals who deserve to be arrested. But why weren't they arrested as soon as they were identified? And why, why weren't they arrested? Why haven't, why haven't they arrested you? Well, this let's just talk about that for a moment. The I was speaking at a uh, an event up in Long Island, New York, on Saturday, and so. Friday night when I arrived there, I was able to meet a gentleman by the name of uh, Siaka Massaquai. Siaka Massaquai is an actor. He is an actor who works for the Battle on B, which obviously is a conservative organization. He works for the Daily Wire. He was just uh, two weeks before my latest threat from the Department of Justice. He was um, attending the premiere of a new Daily Wire comedy special that he was one of the featured actors in this uh, uh, the show. And they were having their premiere on a Saturday. I think it was a uh, Friday or Saturday night, but he flew back into L.A. the next day. And when he and his wife, his pregnant wife, arrived in L.A. at the airport and disembarked from the plane, as soon as they stepped out of the, run, uh, the, the gangplank there at the rain, at the plane, um, there were agents there to arrest him. They surrounded him right there in front of his wife, in front of all the other passengers. And he said, what, what, what is this all about? And they say, you, they said, you know what this is about. And he goes, no, I don't tell me. And they were going, don't make a scene. We don't want you making a scene in front of all the other, we're trying to do this quietly. So we're not making, he goes, you are making a scene right now. You're sure you got, you know, half a dozen officers standing around me right now to arrest me and put cuffs on me you know, in front of my wife here in the airport, you are making a scene. They are arresting this actor who never went inside the Capitol on January 6th. He's black. He's conservative. He has run for office as a um, Republican. He is a Republican GOP activist in California. He works for the Babylon Bee and the Daily Wire. He has all of the earmarks of a political arrest. What are his crimes? His crimes are for the four basic misdemeanors that basically everyone January 6th gets charged with. Those were his crimes. And let me remind your audience, because I've said this before, in the history of the FBI, they have never, ever swatted misdemeanor arrests or defendants or the accused. They don't. The FBI is not used for misdemeanor arrests. That's not their job. But that's what's happening now because it's political. And when I had my first cup of coffee the next morning after his arrest, and I was reading about it sitting there at my computer, and I looked at the screen, and I out loud, and I'm by myself, by myself and I said to myself out loud, and I will forego for uh, the, the, the sake of propriety here, the four-letter word that um, uh, preceded what I said, but I said, holy crap, I'm next. Because the Department of Justice, the FBI, are showing us right now they don't care anymore. They don't care about the political aspects of this. They don't care about 
the image and the irrefutable proof that we have by virtue of hundreds of examples of the politicization of their actions and that this e- and that they are in fact creating a new class of political criminals political prisoners not that once again let's be perfectly honest are there people that did bad things on January 6th absolutely do they do do they deserve to be held a- accountable for those legally absolutely to the fullest extent of the law but we have hundreds of examples where the arrest and the destroyed lives are nothing more than a political statement being made and they are ramping that part up right up right now in response to these new evidences that are being revealed by investigative journalists and congressional investigators and the like and this is a direct attack on that it's a counteroffensive that they're engaged in right now and I am caught in the, um, uh, well, I mean, I'm caught in the crossfire of this. And so as of this moment, and I don't know how much has changed since we spoke last week, but um, my most recently my, my new lead attorney has been reaching out to the DOJ. The last time they spoke to him, they told him that I would be, uh, they had delayed my self-surrender until the middle of this month that I would be given seven to 10 days notice. They have promised me that they are not going to swat me. They've promised me they're not going to, um, you know, surround me with a bunch of uh, police vehicles and red dots on my chest in a Walmart parking lot, and that they're going to give me seven to 10 days notice. Uh, we'll be able to negotiate a time based on my travel schedule and uh, my attorney's schedule for me to self-present. I'll be processed. They tell me that I'll be released on my own recognizance after I go through the humiliation of the fingerprints and the mug shots and then the having to stand before a, a, a magistrate and declare my innocence and then I will be released. That's what I'm being told up to this point. But this individual, this gentleman I was referring to, um, uh, Siaka Masakwa, he was also speaking at that event in Long Island. We got to spend some quality time together. Uh, he is the quintessential political arrest, political prisoner. Dan, what kind of danger do you think that Siaka represented when he landed in Los Angeles after clearing TSA security in Nashville to fly home? <laughs> you think he had any what you think he had any weapons on him? Oh yeah, they had hidden one underneath his seat so he could grab yeah. it, you know, and commit some kind of felony. No. Yeah, do you, do you, yeah, do you do you think that a guy who didn't even go into the Capitol, did no violence, not even accused of doing any violence, do you think they could not have done and and, and at least uh, afforded him the same um, uh, consideration that they are seem to be affording me and called his attorney and said, hey, look, uh, you know, unfortunately, we're sorry to tell you that the DOJ has decided to go forward. They're going to charge him with the four basic misdemeanors, and we would like for him to come in and voluntarily self-present on such and such a date. No, because he has everything going against him. As I said, a black conservative activist, actor, former candidate for GOP position, and that's what they needed to do was to move him to the top of the pile, make an example, embarrass him. And by doing so, Dan, send a message to the rest of the country, people, 
Don't you do this. Don't you be a voice on the right. Don't you be a voice for conservatism. Don't you become an activist. Don't you run for office. Because if you do those things, when we get to the point of show me the man, I'll show you the crime, we're going to embarrass you and we're going to ruin your life. Well, yeah, it's just like, you know, that First Amendment thing, we control it, we're the government. Don't even ever depend on that right because we're taking it away from you in perpetuity. And that may sound trite to somebody listening in, but in action, that's exactly what they're doing. I mean, think about it. They, the Biden administration, actually colluded with big media, social media giants, and called them into question. The government did. Questioned them on posts that they were allowing to be posted on formerly Twitter, X, and Google, and Facebook. All of them called them in on people that had high profiles and tried to, and in many cases were able to stop their ability to express their First Amendment rights. They don't even think about it anymore. They just do it. They take it for granted. Everybody's going to fall in line. That's exactly correct, Dan. And that is the wet blanket that they are attempting to throw over the First Amendment. I have said this from the beginning. I have said this consistently for three years now, is that the biggest narrative victory in the history of this country was won by the left on January 6th. And let's, uh, let's not even, let's not even go into conspiracy theory land. Let's not even present even right now, the evidences that we have that appear to show that this was a setup or an entrapment scheme, but let's just, let's just say that the damage was done by the right itself. Let's say that every single person that threw themselves into violence that day, every single person that provoked the crowd that day, every single person that waved them into the Capitol that day and smashed open doors and everything, let's say every one of them were hardcore, mega mega extremists. Let's just grant them that part of it. If we say that, what the left has done has used that to their advantage now to begin the process of impugning speech and scaring people away from participating in anything that might go wrong. I, you know, because look, by my own estimates, I don't subscribe to the numbers that people throw out of 3 million people being there that day. I have done my own uh, fairly scientific estimates uh, based on uh, military uh, crowd um, estimate uh, models. I have, I have said there's somewhere between 400 and a half, 400,000 and a half million people that were there that day. Out of that 400,000 to a half a million people, there were only about 300 people who actually did actual violence, who did actual property destruction. Other people have been charged with that peripherally for being in the area. Therefore, they get an aiding and abetting charge of violence, or they get a felony charge for having obstructed an official proceeding. And therefore you can impugn them as having stormed the Capitol and tried to stop the function of government that day. And you can make them look worse. But as it is right now, by then arresting another 
thousand people. And now, you, did you see what Matthew Graves, the U.S. attorney, said this weekend? No. He said they're going to extend the perimeter out so that they can arrest another 2,000 people. They're going to arrest people that were just on the grounds that day. People that entered the quote-unquote restricted territory or parts of the property after the fencing and the barricades have been removed and hidden, which we have that activity on video. We have, the, we have them on video picking up the barricades and moving them off to the side and throwing them and stacking them and hiding them in the bushes. And people by the thousands then that moved peacefully and patriotically to let their voices be heard that day over from the rally at the ellipse over to the Capitol never saw those barricades, never saw that fencing that had been removed. And so they came up on that property, and now you're going to hold them responsible for storming the Capitol illegally? This is only political, Dan, but there's a point behind that. It's to keep people from expressing their discontent with their ruler, with their rulers, with the elite, with the people setting the agenda, and with the people establishing and preserving the narrative. Because now, who... Who will want to go to any protest event if you're on the right? Yeah. Because suddenly you may find yourself caught up in an entrapment scheme and arrested and your lives destroyed because of it for you, nothing more than misdemeanor, alleged trespassing. You know, you're in trouble when your government that is always supposed to have been a representative republic, not a democracy, but one nation that uses democracy as part of its representative government format. When you get afraid of them and you don't want to even open your mouth or exercise any of the rights that are enshrined in the Constitution, you know you're headed for some deep trouble. And that's what we're seeing playing out right now. They're scaring everybody to death. Nobody, nobody wants to talk. Close friend of mine, I won't mention his name, pastors a huge church in the Dallas Metroplex. He and his wife were there that day. They did not go into the Capitol, thank God, but they've been contacted and visited just because they're very high-profile people. And it looks like from somebody on the other side that's putting this charade together and expanding it that they would be somebody that they could use by making a scene with them. They're scared to death. He came on my show the week after January 6th, and he was very timid, didn't really want to come on the show because he didn't know what was going to happen, but he figured, based on what he saw, the government was going to try to weaponize that against a bunch of conservative people. That, how many years ago? Three years ago? Three years ago now. Three years Dan, I have had, yeah, since Matthew, attorney, U.S. Attorney Matthew Graves made this announcement on Saturday that they were going to extend the perimeter and arrest another 2,000 people, I've had close friends of mine. I'm not talking about acquaintances. I'm talking about the closest of the closest friends of mine who went to the rally that day, who came over to the Capitol, who never entered the building, who were on the grounds that day, who have called me and said, am I going to be arrested? Is my life going to be shattered? 
Yeah. Am I going to have to be put through this public humiliation? Am I going to lose my job? Am I going to lose my business? Am I going to lose the contracts of my businesses because wanna, of this? I want to get one thing, and then I want you to tell us what is the latest on your situation. Did you have a chance, or did you read the story we published yesterday? Our dictator yes, in chief. Yes, I did. Mm-hmm. Yes. I, 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 got, I didn't tell anybody. I didn't didn't put anything out there. I'd been sitting on that for about a week and a half. Should I publish it? Should I leave it alone? Three million people as of this morning have read it. That wow. All that tells me is people, the eyes are open. Americans are hungry to get the facts of all this stuff, what really happened. And they're watching this shift in the Biden administration where he's out there, like we said, in South Carolina, in that church, he's applauding the unconstitutional stuff that they're doing and bragging about it. There's no impunity. They really don't care. And they are on a trek to do one thing and one thing only, destroy the one person they know, if elected, can because of what he did for four years. I know he's not, he wasn't one of your heroes then. You didn't support him, but he got a lot of good things done, more done than any president in recent history has done for the rule of law and for the American people. If he gets elected and doesn't go to jail, I said this the other day on my show, and I got I got some real negative uh, feedback via text and email when I said it. And it was what Tucker Carlson had said. And before I made this statement, I played what Tucker Carlson said. Tucker predicted that the left will not let Donald Trump get back in office, that they would, they're so desperate now, they would literally take him out before they'd let him get back in the White House. That's the atmosphere that we're living in. And Americans have never seen it before. This is the first time. Yeah, I, I you know, I, I agree. And you're, you're right. I, and I've said this over and over and over again. This is another one of my, you know, I, I hate to say it. I, I, I've come up with so many uh, themes that I've been operating on. But while I have never been a Trump supporter, I've been forced over the last three years to become a Trump defender because of the unconstitutional weaponization of these forces against not just his voice, but similar voices. Sure. And look, you know, I, I, I attended a, an event as I, that I spoke at on Saturday in New Jersey, I'm sorry, uh, Long Island that was for all, look, for all intents and purposes, it was a mega MAGA crowd. Yeah. It's not my audience. <laughs> and, and, uh, and I could have, I, I could have become a flamethrower, that day, but I chose a different path in my, um, my remarks, but I, I will tell you what I think and who I think made the most significant remarks of the night was, um, FBI whistleblower, Kyle Serafin. He followed me on stage and he, his theme of his, uh, presentation was on the difference between what he called a red martyr and a white martyr. A red martyr is the obvious that we think of when we think of martyrs. That is somebody who is, in fact, has sacrificed their life. Their life has been taken from them. They have been killed. They've been executed. They've been murdered, assassinated for a cause. 
and they've been made a martyr as a result of that. Uh, a white martyr is a person who is willing to lose everything for what he believes in. And that doesn't mean that they are going to lose their life. That doesn't mean that they're going to lose their job or their home or their family or their associations or their country club memberships uh, or whatever, but they are the people who are vocal and are willing to make those sacrifices right now, Dan, we need tens of millions of people to come forward and say, I am willing to be a white martyr. They need to be willing to. We need people to be shaken out of their comfort zones. We need people to not be afraid to speak out. We need people to not be afraid to attend these rallies, these protest events, these marches. Uh, there's going to be more of them. They're going to be on both sides of the political aisle coming forward. We see these people doing sit-ins and blocking traffic. I, you know, you know, I drove through the Holland Tunnel on Sunday, and yesterday the Holland Tunnel was black. Uh, was blo uh, blocked off rather by these people, these pro-Palestinian demonstrators. They blocked the Holland Tunnel. And uh, let me tell you, Dan, I would not have been a happy camper <laughs> if I arrived <laughs> follow, following my following my GPS, which took me through the Holland Tunnel if I'd gotten there and then stuck in traffic for hours in downtown New York City. I've never understood why they only have 23 bridges. You know, that's New Jersey on one side. Uh, the the everything on the east side which is both of the big airports and long island and all that there's only 23 bridges for five million people to move around <laughs> manhattan that just that's insane hey listen yeah before you go give us an update your legal team what the plans are the part of this that you can tell us now i know it's growing and growing and growing and a lot of people yeah. are coming into play to be a part of this tell us what what's happening well, the most significant thing that I think is happening uh, to my advantage, to my benefit right now, is my legal team is now up to six very seasoned, experienced lawyers. Uh, they, uh, two of them are uh, very high-profile uh, attorneys. Uh, I will, I will name them very shortly. One, one, a couple of them have already leaked out, but um, of the. Of the six, five of them have been previously engaged at some point and to some extent with the Oath Keepers uh, in their legal proceedings. And the reason why these guys are coming to me is because of the discoveries I've made related to those trials, particularly the Capitol Police cover-ups, the perjuries that we're revealing uh, in the testimonies in those trials. And they are basically coming on board as a in, there's no other way to say it. You know, they, they, they are thankful that I've been doing the work that they and, and uncovering things that they wish they had had access to during those trials. But those particular videos were never made to them during discovery uh, by the department of justice, <coughs> uh, which they would have been able to use and to impeach those, uh, perjurious, uh, law enforcement officers that testified against the oath keepers. And so, that's happening. I, I anticipate that that team will continue to grow. Um, they want to go in with a massive show of force uh, in my defense. They intend to make this a very, very public proceeding if the DOJ goes forward with this uh, prosecution. And then, as I said, I mentioned earlier, um, 
they have not given me the notice yet. They said it would be sometime in the middle of this month. They said that they would give me seven to 10 days notice. As of yesterday, the DOJ or the, the assistant U.S. attorney who now has my case, uh, they've transferred that to uh, a, an AUSA out of D.C., and he has not returned my lead attorney's um, call as of yesterday. And my attorney is trying to reach him today because he's in D.C. today, and he's going to try and see if he can secure a, a uh, face-to-face meeting with him sometime today. And then uh, going forward, basically the plan is uh, right now is that if they do set a date for me to uh, self-present, that we will – we will make a spectacle out of that. We're, we're, we're going to make this the most uh, high-profile um, prosecution that the Department of Justice has had to face thus far of any January 5th, uh, 6th trial, and that includes the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers three trials. Well, I would say this is going to be fun. It's not going to be fun. This is probably going to turn out to be a very necessary thing to get more Americans' eyes focused on the real stuff that happened in January 6th there in Washington, D.C., and that's happened since, exposing a lot of this wrongdoing. Let's just hope and pray we're not too late. Well, I'm I'm hoping and praying, and I'm hoping and asking for your audience to continue praying. Uh, I I still I say I say these words out loud every morning. Uh, Lord, let this cup pass from me. Yeah. But I also told uh, one of my best friends this morning in Nashville. Uh, it's my where I call my Nashville oasis. It's where I stay every time I'm in Nashville. And I told him this morning that. I can't help but look at the uniqueness of my situation in life right now to say it's, it's, it's pretty hard to overlook the possibility that the Lord has put me where I am right now to fight this fight. I don't want it. I want it to pass from me. I do not want to go through this. I am willing to, and I'm not overstating this, and it's certainly not a pat on the back. If this fight will help us save the country, I will go through this fight. It's not going to be pretty, Dan. Yeah. As we've talked about before, show me the man, I'll show you the crime. Yeah. I actually said these words on this very program a few minutes ago. Politics of personal destruction. That has already begun. There are elements on social media right now who have already begun that process. And it's going to be a, uh, it's going to be a slog and they're going to use words. Look, people like you and me who have uttered millions of words, written millions of words, they're going to be able to piece together a narrative that will try to paint me as some sort of radical and therefore Um, impugn the very notion that I was there on January 6th doing journalistic activities and that I was in fact there to storm the Capitol. They're going to have a hard time making that stick, especially when they see some of the anti-Trump memes that I created during his first election campaign. (laughs) But that's, that's another story. And, and, and (laughs) although we, although I don't want the fight, if they're going to put me through it, they're going to get it. Yeah. Well, here's my prayer for you. 
Same one that the Apostle Paul said. I find whatsoever state I'm in, therein to be content. He didn't say happy. He said content. In other words, you're going to be in the right spot. So just go with the flow. I'm going to pray that uh, you're protected, of course, and that the right people will show up at the right time to make this be a huge thing at fighting the evil that hangs over the Potomac Valley up there. Is that okay? Amen to that. All right, buddy. Hey, I know you're on your way to Big D, Blaze Network. Anything comes out over there, drop me a note. If you're going to be on a show or whatever, make sure you let me know, and we'll let our people know that so we can tune in, okay? Yes, absolutely. We've got some big stories coming, and uh, that's why I'm going to be down there for at least a month because we're in production of a minimum of three stories, including the one that I just teased you with that I stumbled on last Tuesday when you and I were talking. (laughs) We'll talk soon. Thank you, Steve. He'll never let you fall to the lies. Your bulwark against the tide of fake news. Dan Newman, TNN, the Truth News Network. So you guys grew up together? Yes, yeah, since third grade. What are you looking at? I w- I'm not looking at anything. We're not good enough for you. You look for something else? No, I, just, I don't know. What are you, big supermodels? Who's us? Supermodels? What are you, model gloves? What are you doing? A girl's totally into me. Brad, eat a Snickers. Why? Because you get a little angry when you're hungry. Better? Better. So, ladies. So, losers. Stacy, relax. I'm sorry. You're not you when you're hungry. Snickers satisfies. You do your thing, and you do it well. Now, it's time to do it bigger. It's time for Shopify. Shopify makes it easy to set up your online store, expand into new sales channels, and bring your brand into the real world. Get everything you need to launch your business today with Shopify. Steve didn't mention this, but there is a great probability now that when he self-presents himself to the authorities, it's going to happen in Dallas-Fort Worth. And if it is, and we have enough prior notice, we're going to put together a big group of people and a bunch of media folks will be there for this to happen. We, of course, will keep you posted and TNN Live will be in the smack dab middle of it. And uh, we just got to join together. We just got to be fellow Americans and watch each other's back through all this. This is a very pivotal historical moment in American history. Talking about that, uh, President Trump is in court today in D.C., And this is a really big deal. What's at stake? Here's a very short, concise 
explanation of what's going on there. Former President Trump is expected in a Washington, D.C. courtroom today as his lawyers are set to argue he should be immune from the criminal charges arising from special counsel Jack Smith's federal election interference case. NBC's senior legal correspondent Laura Jarrett is here with the very latest on this. So set the scene for us. Yep. What brings Donald Trump to court for this appellate court hearing? OK, so this is really a make or break moment for special counsel Jack Smith because the former president is arguing he should be completely immune, completely shielded from any and all prosecution for anything that happened while he was in office as president because of what the special counsel is charging him with. He says everything should then be off the table. Of course, a lower court has already disagreed with that and essentially said that would be giving him a get out of jail free card. And she wasn't willing to do that. And so that's why it's up now on appeal in front of the federal appeals court in Washington, D.C. This could not be more important for the special counsel's office. There are the legal issues and then, as always, there's the political calendar issues. So the appeals court, even if it rules very quickly. Presumably, there will be an appeal to the United States Supreme Court. That takes time. This trial is set for March, the election November 5th. How do all those moving parts work? That's why even if many say that his arguments perhaps are not that persuasive legally, strategically, he could still win here. Because remember, not only could he appeal to the Supreme Court, he could also appeal to the full D.C. Circuit, that federal appeals court, which again, slows all of this down. And this is really the case that was most germane. If you think about it, it's the case about the Republican frontrunner being accused of trying to steal the last election while on the ballot and currently running. And so for prosecutors, this all goes away if he wins, because there will be no more case if he was to actually win. If the Supreme the Court were to say he's immune from criminal prosecution. That's it. That's the whole ballgame. That's game. the end of the, the story. All right, yeah. Laura, we'll be watching. Thank sure. you very much. So we're watching that very closely. And uh, if you didn't read that story that we published yesterday, you need to go check it out. Title at truthnewsnet.org. That's truthnewsnet.org. Story title is, Our Dictator-in-Chief is Officially Campaigning. Let the lies get louder. <laughs> we didn't hold anything back when we came up with that. Well, guys, another good day. Great to hear from Steve and to get more details. And I'll echo his sentiment, and I'll ask you, pray for him. Whatever you think of Steve Baker and think about any of this crazy stuff we're all dealing with regarding January 6th, it's much bigger than January 6th. We all know that now. It's about control of the entire nation, every part of it, and every one of us. We can't let that stand. We just can't let that stand. Well, that's a wrap. It's Tuesday. Golly, what a day. Thank you so much for joining us. We love being a part of your life. We don't take you or that allowance you give to us for granted. We'll, he, we'll be back here first thing in the morning, 9 a.m., 9 to 11, and I hope to see you then. So long, everybody. <laughs>